Welcome to chapter 33 of A History of England. I'm David Beeson and we're ready to celebrate. Because since England knows it's such fun having a monarch, it can only be twice as much fun to have two. Welcome to the reign of William and Mary. Mary was the one with the best right to be on the throne as the daughter of a king, even if it was only that very James II who'd been seen off the premises before she and her husband took over. As for that husband, William, he was just the same king's nephew and son-in-law. So Mary II could have been queen alone in her own right, but this is the reign where we think more of William III, joint holder of the throne with her, as the real monarch. And indeed, she exerted little influence over events, tending rather to defer to her husband. Well, it was a time when the man tended to dominate and the woman to follow. So good that our own times are so different, if they truly are. Let's also be clear about even Mary's legitimacy as monarch. She might have been close to the succession, but she was claiming her inheritance, entitled to it or not, just a little early, wasn't she? Her dad was still alive, after all. He would be for nearly another 13 years, outliving her by a good bit in the process. Why did I say entitled or not? Well, as I mentioned before, until only recently, any legitimate son of a monarch, however much younger than his sisters, had priority for the British throne over any of them. You'll remember Edward VI inheriting the throne from Henry VIII before either of his half-sisters, Mary and Elizabeth, though they were both older than he was. James had a newborn son, James Edward. In fact, it was the arrival of this Catholic heir to the British throne that rather precipitated events leading to James's being kicked out. That son was first in line to the throne and Mary only second to him. Still, that little prince's priority was only a legal nicety, of just the kind the English elite likes to ignore if it's inconvenient. And England duly ignored it. That did, however, mean that William and Mary's claim to the throne was on slightly shaky ground and needed rather a lot of legal shoring up right from the outset to overcome the problem of its somewhat dubious legitimacy. A key element was the fiction that James had abdicated by fleeing to France and therefore hadn't been deposed, which would have been illegal. And who in England wanted any illegality, especially after the nasty events of the civil wars? Taking the decision that the king had abdicated was a good start on legitimising the regime, but we'll see that there was some more spade work to come. Meanwhile, one of the key events at the start of the new reign was something that produced no immediate real change. Curiously, and not at all unusually for English history, the mere fact that an event has no immediate impact doesn't mean it can't have huge influence in the longer term, as this one did. A group of parliamentary supporters of the new monarchs called on them to read a Bill of Rights. It contained some radical suggestions, or at least radical compared to life under James. Parliament would have control of all taxation. Parliaments would be called annually. There would be no standing army. And then there was another and stranger demand. All Protestants were to have the right to bear arms. Presumably this was to ensure that the Protestant citizenry could resist any renewed attempt by government to let Catholics run the show, or, as the Whigs would no doubt have put it, 
to resist tyranny. The later Whig tradition, both in Britain and among the revolting Americans, who liked guns and distrusted standing armies just as much as the English did, would look to this time as the key point in the development of English liberties to be defended, if necessary, in blood on either side of the Atlantic. And yet in many ways the Bill of Rights was much more striking for what it wasn't than for what it was. For one thing, it wasn't signed by the new monarchs. It wasn't enacted as a law. So it wasn't binding on anyone. For another, there was so much it didn't mention. There was nothing about government by consent. Nothing about extending the suffrage. It was about preserving the rights, as they saw them, of a relatively small caste of people wedded to the notion that they, represented by Parliament, should share with the King in ruling the country. They, that is, and nobody else. So, if we're interested in measures that actually made a real difference then and there in William and Mary's reign, it isn't in the Bill of Rights we ought to look for them. Instead, we'll find them in various bits of legislation of the time. One, entirely unrelated to the Bill of Rights, the Act of Toleration, was something William himself made happen. He could see no reason why Protestant dissenters shouldn't enjoy some liberties. There was no call for them to be extended to anything but pretty limited rights, of course. For instance, their places of worship still had to be licensed, they were still excluded from careers in the universities, and they still weren't allowed to hold public office. And the measure was strictly limited to certain dissenting sects. Unitarians, people who deny the Trinity, atheists, and naturally Catholics were left out. But many dissenters could at least practice their religion and come together in acts of worship. Let's come back to the question of the joint monarch's legitimacy and the work I said before still needed to be done to secure it. Another requirement of the Bill of Rights was the exclusion of Catholics from the throne. Since the Bill of Rights had no legal force, this was provided by the 1701 Act of Settlement. By forbidding any Catholic to mount the throne, this removed James II's Catholic son from the succession and added another basis for denying his own claim to the crown, on top of the argument based on his supposed abdication. Neatly, if retrospectively, Parliament had just granted legitimacy to the new monarchs. You think that sounds like the kind of thing a clever lawyer might come up with? Well, there are a lot of clever lawyers in Parliament. Incidentally, the Act also excluded from the throne anyone even married to a Catholic. That restriction was eventually removed, but, shockingly, not until 2015. But it's still illegal for any Catholic to accede to the Crown, either in Britain or in any of the Commonwealth countries that still recognise the British monarch as head of state. Progress happens in England, but hardly at a breathtaking pace. By making it illegal for any of the Stuart royal line, all of them Catholics, to exercise their prior claim to the throne, the Act of Settlement was obviously invaluable for the monarchs. But it was also useful for the constitutional monarchy. After all, it meant that the British royal family owed its position on the throne to parliamentary legislation. That really knocks on the head the notion of God-appointing king, since whatever fine qualities Parliament may have, no one would, I think, regard it as divine. So, even if we're not yet talking about government by consent of the people, we're at least moving towards government with the consent of Parliament. 
It may not have been a huge step in the direction of governments by the people, but any step was a significant one. It's unlikely that William would have gone even so far left to his own devices. He would happily have ruled with the same kind of autonomous authority that the Stuarts had sought. But there was one concession of power to Parliament on which it absolutely insisted, and on which he had to give way, with or without anyone's signature on the Bill of Rights. Never again was anyone else to have any kind of authority over taxation. Since Parliament decided not even to award William the King's traditional privilege of the income from customs and tariffs, that left him far more dependent than his predecessors on Parliament for finance. The Crown was wealthy, but nothing like wealthy enough for the big ticket items, especially for wars. Like it or not, he'd have to call Parliaments annually, because this King had plenty of wars to fight. Don't forget that William was a Dutchman and one of the major motivations for his invasion of England, supported by Dutch money and Dutch soldiers, was to protect the interests of Holland against military aggression, especially from Louis XIV's France. One way of seeing William's arrival on the British throne was as a blow in a wider European war, ensuring that Britain remained allied with Holland and the Protestant states of Germany against the French, the leading Catholic power now that Spain had sunk to secondary rank. William, strengthened by success in England, continued to wage that war. He needed money for his campaigns. For that, he had to go to Parliament to entreat them to support him. That established the power of Parliament far more firmly than under earlier monarchs. It also meant that each wing of government, Parliament and the King, had to find a way to get along with the other, and both had to accept that they were bound by law. However, we're still a long way from democracy as we understand it. Parliament was no more likely than the King to uphold certain rights we think of as fundamental, such as freedom of speech. Parliament itself was made up of members of only a tiny elite, who alone had the vote. It's difficult to get reliable figures, but there are unlikely to be more than 250,000 voters out of a population of 5 million. In addition, many parliamentary constituencies, the so-called pocket boroughs, had tiny electorates controlled by a local magnet. That's pocket in the sense that the magnet had the borough in his pocket and could hand its seat in Parliament gift-wrapped to whichever candidate he chose. That wasn't democracy. But forcing the king to obtain parliamentary consent for his actions nudged England a little further down the way. William III was a king who couldn't simply say, It is my will, make it so. He needed to keep MPs on side, and in particular, if he wanted to do something expensive, he needed them to vote him the funds. As I said before, of all the things William wanted to do, or in some cases had to do, none was more costly than war. That's something we can explore in our next episode, where we may find that the bloodless coup of the Glorious Revolution turned out to be rather bloodier than one might have imagined. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.